You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. So we're going to start actually in the middle of the Gospel of Mark. And you might go like, why? Why would we start in the middle? Um, Well, because how long do you want this series to last? (laughs) No, but um, because... It is the pivotal verse. It's the fulcrum verse that everything kind of flips on in the gospel. So the gospel of Mark actually begins with Mark 1.1, and it kind of spells out from the beginning. And I think I've got, I know I'm out of order on the slides already, but Mark 1.1 is there. I think it's the third slide or something. Right. And it says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So boom, right away, um, you go like, wow, you know, the words come up that Jesus is the Christ. Now, that's not his last name, okay? Do you understand? It's not his last name. Christ is not, you know, it wasn't Joseph Christ and Mary Christ had Jesus Christ. Christ is the Greek word Christos, which is the equivalent to the Hebrew word Mashiach, Messiah, for the anointed one. And so right away, Mark is saying at the beginning, here's good news about Jesus, who is the anointed one of God, which is really what the kings were anointed. So everybody's looking for somebody like a David to show up, but better, stronger, faster. We can build him even bigger, you know. Um, That's kind of the way that they were looking for Jesus, the Messiah, to come. But then what happens in this gospel is fascinating. He starts out with that verse, and then he doesn't tell you anything about what he means by those words for chapter after chapter after chapter. For eight chapters, Jesus is going about, he's healing, he's teaching, he's causing controversy after controversy, and the crowds turn to him, and his disciples look at him, and they say, who is this that even the wind and waves obey him? Who is this who eats with sinners and tax collectors? Who is this? who heals on the Sabbath. Doesn't he know what he, and they can't figure out who is he and what is he about? They keep asking the question and they're clueless up until the words of our text today in Mark chapter eight. We're gonna read them now. Mark 8, 27 to 38. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now I know you don't, you the town Caesarea Philippi, probably, it's like, well, oh, okay. This is the weirdest thing. So the setting of this whole thing happened. He is right now, if you would find Caesarea Philippi on a map in the Middle East today, it is north, far north of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is right now the farthest away he can get from Jerusalem, the place of power and authority and political power, religious power, and the center of everything, according to anybody who was Jewish at the time. He is as far away as possible from that, where he reveals who he is, and the disciples, well, you'll see what happened. But that says something already about what kind of a king he's going to be and what kind of a kingdom when he is not even near Jerusalem at all. Okay? He never even, in the Gospel of Mark, he doesn't even show up in Jerusalem until it's the week he's going to die. Boom. That's it. It's fascinating that way. Anyway, so let's go on. (laughs) And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? 
And he told him, and they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowds to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be, uh, will the, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with the holy angels. Wow. Okay. From this, this is the fulcrum. The rest of the gospel now of Mark is going to go in this direction of explaining what kind of a king he is and what kind of a kingdom it is and what it means to follow. And that's what we're going to look at in this time. Often the church, uh, the tradition of the church, uh, of, of kind of the Western church at a point, the 40 days before Easter was set aside as a time to reflect on the cross and on um, what Jesus was doing and on all of that and not just jump to the resurrection, you know, because we all want to get there. But this is important stuff. This is why there is even a resurrection. You know, you got to die first before you're raised. <laughs> Have you ever thought of that? <laughs> you don't get resurrected from life to life. You get from death to life. And so that's what it is. In Mark chapter 8, we're going to look at two points today. Um, I, uh, it seems simple, but um, I think it's upside down and backwards from what we anticipate a king is supposed to be like. So Jesus is saying to Peter, yes, you're right. I am the Messiah, the Christ, the king anointed. So I am a king. A king on a cross is going to be our first point. But notice what kind of a king he is. And then he says, following me means picking up your cross too. So we're going to take these one at a time. So I'm a king, a king on a cross. So he agrees with Peter. Yes, you got it right. You finally figured it out after eight chapters. <laughs> after all of these things that you've been through for the last couple of years with me, you finally pinpointed I'm not just a prophet. I am not just somebody like John the Baptist. I am not the replacement of anything before. I am greater than them all, but greater in a way that you have no idea what I'm talking about. Okay? Because then he said in Mark 8, 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now, I don't know if you realize this. Jesus used that phrase, Son of Man, more often than any other phrase about himself. Okay? And um, quite often. He calls himself like a hundred times in the Gospels. He hardly ever says he's the son of God. We kind of flip those two. If you look at the Bible and how it defines them, the son of man has, um, I, and I think why he uses the term son of man is because it doesn't have 
all the baggage that the disciples knew with the word Messiah. Because they had expectations of what the Messiah was going to be like. He's going to be David, but on steroids. Spiritual steroids, but steroids. He's going to be stronger, bigger, faster, greater. And he's going to bring in, knock some heads, get rid of all the Roman domination. And we're going to have a wonderful party. And he's going to be in charge of it. And um, so he needed to kind of use a term that they weren't used to. It's still in the Old Testament. Uh, Once in a while, it's used just for the humility of a human being, son of man, kind of saying, here you are. You are a human. You are from a human. But there's one passage in particular that points to something greater than that. And that is in a uh, prophecy of Daniel chapter 7. It's a fascinating word. Where in it, this is what Daniel sees in Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that is God, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that will not be destroyed. So here we have Jesus saying, I am that heavenly, earthly, human, divine being whose kingdom will last forever. It will never pass away. You know? Yeah, so that's what it means to be the Messiah. And they, everybody would say amen to that. Sounds great. Let's do it, Jesus. Let's go in there. Be that divine, heavenly being that just kind of kicks some Roman butt and gets rid of everybody and kills off all your enemies and brings people like me. Yeah, that's not what's going to happen. Because what Jesus says next is this. He says, the Son of Man must suffer. Did you see that in the text? That blew their minds. Revolutionary. First time ever in the history of Israel that people put the idea of a Messiah figure, a divine figure, and suffering together. Ever. Ever. Oh, they believed a Messiah would come. They believed also people suffered, but that the Messiah would suffer? That seemed like a total contradiction. That doesn't make any sense. It didn't add up. It just was inconceivable. The people of God were looking for that divine, heavenly, ultimate king, the greatest ruler. How in the world is he supposed to be suffering? There were passages in the Old Testament, in the prophets, about a suffering servant. You can read them in Isaiah chapters 40 on, talking about, here my servant whom I uphold, whom my soul delights in, and he will suffer in the place of the people. But that was a servant. There was never a passage in the Old Testament in any of the prophets that says the Messiah will suffer. The king will suffer. The son of man must suffer. That was a first, and that's why Peter looks at him, jaw wide open, and rebukes him to his face. Can you imagine rebuking Jesus? And you think that term is just mild? No, it's not mild at all. That term in the Gospel of Mark is used for how Jesus rebuked the demons. 
Do you understand? So when Peter is looking at Jesus, he is telling him off like Jesus told off the demons. Whoa. That was kind of gutsy, wasn't it? He expected a Messiah like David, but better, and he couldn't handle the idea that Jesus would go to Jerusalem and die. And you have to understand something about the cross. I think sometimes that we don't get it. And the prophecies that Jesus will bring this up again and again throughout the gospel. He'll bring it up three different times. And each time the disciples are clueless at best or they're like Peter at worst, where they basically totally oppose and go in a totally different direction of what the kingdom is supposed to be like. Okay? And part of it is because the cross is not a wonderful, nice little thing by any means. It was the epitome of helplessness and shame. And we don't have too many depictions of the reality of the cross, even in the wonderful paintings in the Renaissance and all. They make it look so beautiful in some ways and not that gory. And they, you, you have to understand, when somebody was crucified by the Romans, they were stripped naked, they were beaten, they were taunted, they were treated as rubbish, they were they were um, ridiculed, and they died an agonizingly painful death. It was not quick or easy. It lasted hours and hours. They extended it out as long as possible to prove the point that you do not want to go this way. You do not want this. It's the exact opposite of what Peter thought. He thought Jesus is going to be exalted on a throne. He's going to come into Jerusalem. He's going to take over the temple. He's going to lead everything in the right way. He is going to right all wrong. How in the world can this, how can he do that if he dies? Now, here's the other thing. Did you see in that statement? It wasn't that Jesus said, I will die, I will suffer. I must suffer. That's a really important small little word there. I must suffer. Jesus isn't saying, hey, you know, it's going to be a tragedy that happens in Jerusalem. It's going to be kind of, well, a byproduct. It is the reason I'm going. I must suffer and die for you. If I don't, there is no kingdom. There is no king. There is no way that God is setting anything up. The world can't be changed, and your life cannot be renewed unless I die. It is absolutely necessary I go there. And over the course of 20 centuries, since the time Jesus said these types of words, the, the uh, Christians have, have wrestled with this whole idea of, why is it that Jesus actually had to die? Why couldn't God just kind of snap his fingers and make everything nice? You know, a little bling fairy dust or something. You know, we like magic. God doesn't deal with magic. He deals with the miraculous, but he does so in such a way it's absolutely necessary that he die. So over the years, there are basically three reasons that they came up. It was absolutely necessary for us that Jesus die relationally, legally, and cosmically. First of all, relationally. William Vanstone is an Anglican theologian, and I, he, he has passed away himself. And he wrote a book called Love's Endeavor, Love's Expense. And in that book, he analyzes the difference really between true love and false love. 
Okay? And false love, he says, we kind of know what fake love looks like. The fake love is that aim of I love you because I'm getting something from you, love. Do you, you know what I mean, right? Um, you kind of use the other person to fulfill your happiness. So you do wonderful things for them because they're going to say, thank you so much, and isn't that wonderful? And oh, and now can I give, and it's kind of a payback love. And he says, that's kind of fake. It's conditional. It's often guarded. You only love so long as, or as long as it is beneficial to you. You hold back. It's a negotiated love. Then he says, um, true love, on the other hand, it has an aim as well. But its aim is the joy and the happiness of the other person, and that's it. No other agenda. Your greatest joy is that other person's joy. So it's absolutely unconditional. It's radical. It becomes, um, as he said, limitless, precarious, and vulnerable. And when Vanstone said that, he goes, you know what? No human being can love like that. And, he, and why? Well, because you need that kind of love. And I have a love deficit in my life. So I'm looking for that kind of love. So anytime that I'm loving, I'm also starving for the love that I need to be giving. But I can't give it completely because I'm still... And so my love is always a little mercenary, you know? And you can see that. You love people who like you. You love people you can get things from. You have people over that will, you know? And, and it's not, we're not trying to say that that's wrong. It's just we cannot love limitless and totally vulnerably and unconditionally. And even the love for children that you have, there are limits to the way that you love. You, every parent knows. And there were times, you might even say, you are pushing my limits at this point. You, can, you go, watch out, or you'll be, in, you'll be slapped into next week, right? Or whatever. Don't worry. Right now, Johnny Jr. is small enough. It feels like you can love them completely. But there will be a time that it just won't quite work. Just give it a year or so. OK? So the question is, even when we as parents can't do it, we can't do it for anyone else completely because we need it so much ourselves. And yet it is absolutely essential that we have in the ground of our being the experience of being loved absolutely, unconditionally, without limit, vulnerably and openly. So who's going to do that? So Jesus leaves his throne of glory. He had no need for anything. He got nothing, absolutely nothing out of coming to earth. And then we see it to the point where he goes to a cross where there is absolutely nothing good for him on the cross. There is nothing for him. He loses everything on the cross. It is completely unconditional. He is totally open. He is totally giving. He pours out his very life. There is not one breath or one thing or one thought or anything for him at that cross. He loves completely, vulnerably, precariously, at the risk of everything at that cross. And all he wants is to give you what he already had with the Father and the Spirit from all eternity. He gives it all up. 
When you start to experience that, to start to understand, to comprehend, to receive that, all of a sudden our love starts to, that fake love stuff starts to fade away and some real authentic love starts to happen in our lives as well. That's why Jesus must suffer on the cross. You know, um, and you might not, only Christians really believe that God is love, that is that kind of love. There are other religions and other philosophies, et cetera, that will say God has a loving quality about him, but it's never, it's more of an abstract. It's not experience. It doesn't happen in real life necessarily. It's like, yeah, perhaps he's loving or he is somewhat loving. But this is the one that says it's historical, it's accurate, it's real, it happened, it's happening, and it's complete. And you have a concrete proof of that. Everything else is just kind of, because I can say I love you in words very easily without loving you at all. But we see in Jesus, that is why Jesus had to die relationally for us, for us to receive that unconditional love of God and know that we are loved to the depths of our soul and being. Secondly, or B, legally, You know, um, why must Jesus die? Because there's a price to pay. You know that. You know, so you have guests over at your house, okay? And somebody's reckless. They, uh, you know, for whatever reason, they might have been reckless. They sit in a chair or they jump up and down and it breaks, you know? Now, you have a choice. You can just say, oh, no problem. We'll take care of that. You'll pay the price of the chair in one form or another, or you can make them pay, right? And you can say, oh, no, no problem. We don't really need that chair anyways. So you might not pay for it to be repaired or pay for it to be replaced, but now you've paid the price of not having the chair to enjoy and sit on and use anymore. But there's a price to be paid. Now, that is true for something... um, in economic terms, it's also true for anything in life. If someone damages your reputation, willfully or not willfully, there is a price to be paid. You know? And you can decide to pay it yourself, that's called forgiveness, or you can have them pay it. And a lot of people in this world are trying to get other people to pay for what they did in one form or another. And you can try to do that by always talking negatively about them to other people, holding and being bitter towards them. But you know what happens when you try to make them pay? You start turning from the victim into a culprit yourself, and you become just as bad, if not worse, than the person who did that to you. But if you choose to pay the price to forgive that person, there is a real price to pay. Because any time that comes up that you want to say something negative about them to somebody else, you hold back, it hurts. There is a sacrifice. You're paying the price. But the more that you do that, the more you can actually have back a relationship with that person again, and the more possible it is for you to actually have justice occur in that relationship rather than have it all about vengeance, revenge. So when Jesus is saying, I must die, he's saying, I'm paying the price. And only when that incredible cost is absorbed is there hope for any relationship with God. 
Think about it. If you know that forgiveness in a small matter entails some amount of suffering for the forgiver, just think the price that Jesus paid for forgiving the entire world of all of their sins. That's legally. And finally, cosmically, what do I mean by that? Jesus goes to the cross and defeats the power that have gripped the world since the beginning, the powers of evil that have been controlling the world. Now, I'm not going to go into detail on this one. I'm just going to share with you this passage. That this comes up in Colossians 2.15, where, where it said, At the cross he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them into open shame by triumphing over them in him. So when Jesus rebukes Peter, he's saying to Peter, not that you are literally Satan, but that you are aligned with Satan and you have in mind the things of the devil. Because the devil was all about power and glory and might and force and coercion. And Jesus puts force and coercion and all of the ways that people try to manipulate each other to death on the cross. And he releases us from that over our lives so we can actually love and sacrificially give. And we no longer have to fear what other people could ever. There is nothing in all creation that can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Nothing anymore because of what's happened there. And so nothing anybody can do can force you to... What scared the Romans more than anything, the Roman government, was the freedom that the Christians had that they didn't fear even death because it's all been taken care of. The powers are gone. Isn't that wild? So that's cosmically. So there are three reasons Jesus had to die so that we'd be transformed by his love, that our debts were canceled, that he conquers the power of evil that's gripped the world. That's called Christ is our model or example. Christ is our replacement or substitute, and Christ is our victor. Those are the three global theories of the atonement, by the way. So he's saying, I'm not going to change your life by being another in a long line of kings and dictators, and rulers, and, quote, revolutionaries, and gurus, and teachers, and prophets, I'm going to be your substitute. I am going to pay the price. I am going to model and give you a love unbelievable. And that's going to change the world. So I'm a king on a cross, and following me means going to the cross, too. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So what does that mean? And I think it comes down to these two things that kind of spell out in the rest of this verse that you need to get a new identity and you need to get a new agenda. So Jesus said, for whoever wants to save his life is going to lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And that word there, that's fascinating. It sounds like a total paradox. How can I lose my life and save it? But the word for life there, which is fascinating, is the Greek word psyche or suke, which is where we get psychology. And it's really meaning your identity. It's who you are. It's your uniqueness. And Jesus is saying, the way that you find your identity in this world is not the way it's going to work anymore. You've got to find it in a new way. In fact, you don't find it you're stripped of the old identity, and then I give you a new one. He says, yeah, for what does it profit anyone to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Every culture, whether it's traditional or a modern, like ours, 
where we find our identity. It's in finding my life, I find myself, I find this, I find that. Whether it's family in a traditional, I need to have a, a spouse, I need to have children, I need to have a reputation, I need to have honor in my, and I gain that, then I've got a real life and I'm somebody. Or in the modern world, it's you got to have a career, you've got to make a difference in the world, you've got to have significance. I gain that, then I'm somebody. Jesus says, that doesn't work. You can gain the whole world. It's not enough. It hasn't ever worked. No, instead, he says, I don't want you to shift from one way of performing and gaining an identity to another. I don't want to switch from money, you know, like I, I, if I have enough money, then I'm somebody, to religion. Okay, now I'm going to just be moral and upright up, and do all these things. No, that's not going to work. Now, he says, you gain it by losing it for the sake of the gospel. You receive it from, and I love the fact that he says the gospel. You see, Jesus is the one who relationally, legally, cosmically lost everything for you. At the cross, he loses his identity. Do you realize that? He's there on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He lost his relationship, his identity with his father. Instead of calling him father, he calls him God. The first time in the entire gospels that he doesn't refer to him as his father. And that quote is from Psalm 22. And when you read that in the Old Testament, the, 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 the psalm itself details what Jesus was going through on the cross. And one line comes up in it that's just so telling about how he lost everything. He says, I am a worm and not a man. He lost everything. He gives you his identity. He lost it all for you. If you start seeing the son of man who has given up all his very self for you, how can you not respond? How can you not go like, wow, and receive what he has for you? I think C.S. Lewis said it well in Mere Christianity. He says, the more we get what we call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. It's no good trying to be myself without him. It is when I turn to Christ, when I give up myself to his personality, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. Your real new self will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will come when you are looking for him. And that's the new agenda. Him. Him alone. We're just going to end with this. Another quote from C.S. Lewis. I think it's the end of his book, Mere Christianity. He says this, Nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ. You'll find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this series. It's a tough one, Lord. Help us understand that we, when we lose ourselves for the sake of the gospel, when we lose our sense of who we are and control and our agenda and everything else, Lord, and we let you be 
our agenda. You be our Lord, that we don't negotiate with the king. We just bow down and worship you, a king on the cross, Lord. That's when we find it all. That's when we gain it all. Over the next weeks, Lord, just open us up to your upside-down kingdom and that we might live it out in a world that so desperately needs a different kind of way than it's going on right now. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.